0: Right guys, welcome to Salt City again. My name's Drew Stevenson. For those of you who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, just to catch you guys up to speed, a couple weeks ago my son Jude was born with a congenital heart defect. And so less than 24 hours after he was born he had a pretty massive open heart surgery and he's been in the hospital. And so my wife and I have been back and forth between the hospital and home with our other five kids, and I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to work in the midst of that. And so my solution was this week to prepare my sermon in my son Jude's hospital room. And talk about perspective as you're diving into God's Word and hearing the beep of all of the different machines in the room, having conversations with nurses in between passages of scripture, and also, to my delight, getting text messages and phone calls from you guys, hearing from my wife that a meal was dropped off at our house, or a gift card, or somebody dropped off a check or whatever. And to be honest with you, this church family has carried our family through this. And what's really in my heart right now, and part of the reason I even wanted to get up and preach this week was just to say, thank you so much to you guys. I remember um, last semester, we talked about that semester being about planting this church. Like, let's just get this thing off the ground and get started and not to care too much about anything else. And then this semester, as we looked forward, we really had the vision of our church becoming a family, and I didn't know that I would be the greatest recipient of what that would mean. And so I just want to say thank you guys so much for being my family. And it's fun thinking about that. So I'm thinking about Jude. I'm thinking about you guys. I'm pretty emotional all week. And I'm studying this passage of Scripture. And it just dawns on me that one of the central themes of the Gospel of Mark that we're going to continue to dive into this morning has been what I've been getting a front row seat to. And over and over again, what we've been seeing is that Jesus is so counterintuitive in his nature to us, that he didn't come to be served by us, but he came to be our servant. And he calls us into this abundant life of denying ourselves in order to follow him. Let me give you a couple examples of this that we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark 8, Verses 34 and 35, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So that's sort of the negative side of it. As followers of Christ, we're called to give up our comfort and we're called to deny our most deeply held desires and impulses sinful impulses in order to follow after Jesus. And then there's sort of the positive take on this, which is stated in Mark 9, verse 35. Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. So if the negative side of it is deny yourself, the positive side of it is to live this life of sacrificial service. And that's what I feel like I've gotten this front row seat to, is watching Christ followers be Christ followers and seeing the beauty of that firsthand. And so my heart's overflowing with thankfulness, but as I was diving into this passage, I was seeing that Jesus wants us to go even deeper into this. So he doesn't want to just leave us with this sort of superficial understanding of what it means to deny ourselves and follow him and be servants. He gives us three specific examples Of what that looks like. And he wants us to walk in a purposeful way to fulfill what he has called us into. So let's look this morning at three specific ways that Jesus asks each of us to deny ourselves and to be his servants. He wants us to deny intolerance and follow Jesus, to deny immorality and follow Jesus, and to deny individualism and follow Jesus. So let's just take those one at a time. First of all, He's calling us to deny intolerance and follow Jesus. We're in Mark chapter 9, we're starting with verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So, what you need to remember about this passage is that this episode is taking place in Capernaum in a home. And so, Jesus is having a private discussion with his disciples about what it means to follow him. and So because it's a private discussion, they ask him this specific question. And so they saw someone casting out demons in his name, but a person who was not directly following after him. Now, a little more backdrop. If you flip back in the Gospel of Mark, you notice that the last time that the disciples attempted to cast out a demon, they were unsuccessful. You remember that? So... Jesus comes back from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they had tried to cast out a demon, and they weren't able to do it, and he said, this kind of demon is only cast out through prayer. And so I think that underneath their question is a little bit of jealousy, right? They're like, how come these guys who aren't following after you, Jesus, are able to cast out demons, and we can't cast out demons, And so we see one of the ingredients in intolerance of other groups of Christians is jealousy. And the other thing that we see in this passage is judgment, right? So when the disciples say at the end of verse 38 that these other people who are trying to cast out demons were not following us, what it literally means is they're not one of us. So you can imagine what it was like being one of the inner circle of 12 disciples of Jesus. Like how cool would that be? I mean, it's, I know it's cool for you guys to have me as your pastor, but imagine if Jesus was directly your pastor, right? Like somebody else is like, yeah, we've got this great leader. And you're like, you just wait for them to finish talking, right? And you're just like, Our leader is God, who's walked on the earth. And they start talking about what their leader can do, and you start talking about what your leader can do, like walk on water and heal blind people and all these things. And you start to actually maybe pat yourself on the back and think that you're pretty great because of who you are directly following. And so what we see in the disciples is both sort of, I think, this underlying jealousy— of this other group. They can cast out demons and we can't. But mainly what you see is this pride that is turned into judgment like, how dare they think that they're better than us? We are the real followers of Jesus. We're the inner circle. We're in. They're out. And what we see in this passage is Jesus confront them head on He says, guys, don't stop them because it's possible. Now, this is is really interesting. It's possible to not literally be following Jesus around and still to be a genuine follower of Jesus. He says, it's possible that these people, even though they're not in the so-called inner circle, that they are genuine disciples of mine, And because they're genuine disciples of mine, even if they're getting some things wrong, they are not to be judged. You are to commend them for what they're doing, which really has amazing implications for us as Christ followers, because I think that all of us have this tendency for our love for our own small group or our love for our own church to turn into pride, which turns into judgment of other Christians. And as Christians, we can waste our time fighting against each other instead of pursuing God's kingdom on the earth as it is in heaven. And I think the warning for us here is that if the disciples were prone to, us, to this, we probably are too. And this can be such a subtle thing to say, well, I'm just glad that my church teaches verse by verse through the Bible. I'm glad that the worship songs in our church are based on the Bible. We do small groups. People in our church don't do crazy things like speak in tongues. There aren't weird people who go to our church. Like, people here are pretty normal, right? And we can begin to think that the things that we love about our church or about the group of Christians that we most identify with make us better than other people. Now, I remember having this experience of judgment pretty early on in my Christian life. So I think maybe those of us who came to Christ early in life are more prone to this sin than others. Okay? But I remember we started going to this church when I was in about sixth grade that was a little bit on the odd side. Okay? So just to give you a few examples, most of the women at the church wore long jean skirts and wore head coverings. And there was a very prominent homeschool culture in the church. And I was a public school kid. And there was an emphasis in this church on charismatic gifts. And so people talked about speaking in tongues and prophecy and all those types of things. And so I remember going to this church and just thinking, these people are a bunch of weirdos. Why are we going to this church? But I think after going there for a few years and being in small group with people and getting to know people and being part of the culture, the more I was there, the more I began to appreciate certain things. And like me, you might go into that church and you might observe those same things that I did. And maybe even as I described it, you're like, I would never set foot in that church, right? I don't want anything to do with those people. But if you got to know them, and I had some time to just lay out some of the the beautiful examples of faith in that church, like when one family was in need of a vehicle and another family in that church bought them a van, or when there was sort of a traumatic injury of one of the little kids at the church right after the service and the whole church surrounded that family to help care for that child and that family as they went through one of the hardest things that you could imagine in life. Or if I could bring you into one of the prayer meetings in that church and you could just hear the genuineness of the prayers of these people, you might even feel a little bit jealous of the connection that many of them had with God. And I think what Jesus is calling us into is not what what I mean by tolerance is not an unconditional affirmation of everything about every other Christian. But I think what I'm calling us as a church to do is that when somebody names the name of Christ, that we unconditionally accept them with a familial type love. That our knee-jerk reaction when we hear about another church or about another Christian doing something that we would consider even kind of strange that our heart's reaction would just say, but they love Jesus. And because they love Jesus, I'm not going to give into this temptation to consider them an outsider, but I'm going to embrace them as part of my family. You guys know what that's like. Even when you run into somebody halfway across the globe, and you find out that they're a Christian. And your eyes sort of light up, and you immediately, I hope, feel a connection to them because of that. So Jesus calls us to sort of get rid of this intolerant attitude that we can have toward other sort of sects of Christianity, and to instead embrace them as brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two, he calls us to deny our immorality, and follow after Jesus. Picking up the story in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, I think there can be a tendency. I mean, Jesus mentions hell a few times in this passage. And I think maybe in the church you grew up in or maybe um, just your impression of Christianity in general is that Christians like to use hell to sort of bully other people. And I would encourage you, if that's your tendency, um, to repent of that and um, to really take what Jesus is talking about here with a seriousness and sobriety. And the reason for that is because Jesus is not talking to people out there. Jesus is talking to us in here. So remember the setting of this passage is Jesus is essentially in a home, in a small group, with his closest followers. Don't imagine him yelling on a street corner with a bullhorn He's sitting in a circle with tears in his eyes. And he's saying, guys, there is a danger for all of you. The danger does not primarily reside outside of you. The problem with the world is not out there. The primary problem with the world that each of us as Christians is called to deal with is the problem with our own indwelling sin nature. The greatest danger to you is you, it's your hand, it's your foot, it's your eye. It's your mind. It's your heart. It's not peer pressure. It's actually your own desires. And Jesus says over and over again you must deny yourself in order to be my follower. Which in this culture, I will admit, sounds like horrible news. Because what our culture says is to be fully yourself, you must follow your own desires. And Jesus, make no bones about it, is saying the exact opposite thing here. What you most naturally want to do will land you in hell if it does not go unchecked. And Jesus makes it clear that hell is eternal, conscious torment forever and ever and ever. We are not kidding around this morning about our sin. And you have to understand that the reason that Jesus has this conversation with his disciples In the context of a living room with tears in his eyes, is because he loves them so much. He reserves his most pointed warnings for those he cares about most deeply. Let me give you an example of this from my own life. I remember one time. sent the kids out to the backyard. They were all playing out in the back. And my daughters were probably two at this time. And at the time, I think we had four kids. And my girls were up on our play set playing, which when you have four kids, you let your kids do kind of crazy things. And I think our neighbor was supposed to be watching them. and They were over in the backyard, but they had kind of taken their eye off the situation. And so I'm looking out the back window and I'm seeing my daughters sort of starting to list, right, on the top of this play set, sort of go back and forth. And they're not really paying attention. And I see one of my daughters just start to sort of make her way toward the edge of the play set. And when you're two, you might think it's a good idea just to run off the playset, right? And then I see that she starts to kind of pick up a little bit of speed. And so as I'm seeing this, I'm like watching out the window and run, you know, running out the screen door. And I run out the screen door, and I can see that she is about to like take the plunge, right? And and so I am like a crazy person at this point, and I don't exactly know what came out, but like, no, no, run off the door! And I, I mean, and I'm like, you know, running and probably somewhat awkwardly, and and I run over there and. I yelled with such force that I, I got there and my, my daughter had, like, literally frozen in her tracks, right? And then I kind of reached my arms up and she falls into my arms, right? Balling, <laughs> right? But what I'm saying is I reserved my stiffest warning for the person I loved the most. Now, what would be crazy is if I went around the neighborhood and just started screaming at random kids not to fall off their plate, like people in the neighborhood, what is this guy doing? Is he like the playground police? What is going on? But it makes total sense that I would give my daughter that type of protection. And when we hear Jesus tell us about hell, and about the seriousness of the consequences of our sin, we have to hear him as our father who loves us so much that he doesn't want us to fall. He wants to stop us in our tracks. In fact, I think this is a great sort of three-step process for whatever sin you're dealing with. Okay, I could name off a number of different sins, but let's just use the example of anger because I think a lot of us struggle in different ways with anger. Maybe it's sort of internalizing anger or maybe it's explosive anger. But there's this anger that sort of has this degrading effect on our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we need to hear Jesus saying to us, it's that type of sin that leads to eternal conscious torment from separation from God. And you need to deal with it in a swift way. And so I think what he's saying is the first step to dealing with your sin is you just got to stop. You got to catch yourself. So you're tempted to get angry. Something, someone is making you angry. Maybe you're picturing yourself in your car right now. You're about to flip somebody the bird, right? And Jesus is saying you need to stop. Whatever sin it is, you need to stop. You need to think You need to kind of like get sober again. And then you need to turn around, which is repentance. So turn away from the sin, turn toward Jesus, and run as fast as you can to the escape route, which is his commandment. So maybe if it's with anger, you would run to Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let any wholesome talk come out of your mouth but only what is helpful for building others up that it may benefit those who listen. So you understand, Jesus is saying, stop, you're destroying yourself. Turn around, there's a different way out. And I wish right now that I could sort of give you the escape hatch, like the easy path to becoming more Christ-like. But I'm telling you, it's about The small decisions of your everyday. If you're not following Jesus in the small decisions of your everyday, you're not following Jesus at all. It's about the habits of your heart and your mind. The same thing could be applied to any number of sins. It's as simple and yet as profound of saying no to what you want to do and saying yes to what Jesus. has you to do. And he calls us each and every day to deny that immorality that's within us and to choose to follow after him. I love this quote from this old school Puritan guy named John Owen. He said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Our sin nature is not something to be coddled. It is something that we make war against. As a Christian, you're in an irreconcilable war against yourself, against your own desires. Which leads us to the last point, the last denial that Jesus calls us into, which sort of overlaps and coincides with the other two. He says we're to deny individualism and follow after Jesus. Now we're called Salt City Church and word for word, I think this gives us the most punch with the word salt. So we really gotta pay attention to this, okay? Mark 9, 49 through 50. Jesus said, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, that's a whole lot of salt. How are we supposed to understand what in the world Jesus is talking about Well, in this passage, he's really talking about the salt that combats our individualism. Okay? So, in this first section here, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Think what he's talking about there is the accountability of the gospel. We have this God who is Lord over all, and he will judge the living and the dead. You will be accountable for every single word that you speak in this life. That is a great anecdote to, antidote to individualism because you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In other words, one of the main tenets of individualism is that you can do whatever you want because your life is yours But what the Bible teaches is that you are ultimately accountable to God. You will be judged for what you do in the body. Then he goes on to say that salt is good. Salt has lost its saltiness. How will it be made salty again? There he's talking about the way that salt flavors and preserves. He's really talking about how our lives should not be focused on ourselves, but should be focused on reaching outward to other people. Our lives should be about sharing the good news of Jesus with our neighbors and our friends and our co-workers. And then lastly, he talks about having salt in ourselves and being at peace with one another. And there he's also talking about this flavoring and preserving influence of salt, but he's applying it to us as a church. And he's saying, not only are you accountable to God for everything that you do and called to reach out to your neighbors, friends, and coworkers, you are also called to have unity with your relationships with other Christians. You're to be at peace with one another. And really what we see here is that there's sort of an interdependence between these three things. I think the reason that, Jesus sort of traces this theme of salt through all three of these things, is he's saying it's essentially the same salt that keeps you accountable, that keeps you motivated to reach out to others, and keeps you at peace with the people around you. And so if you don't think that you're accountable to God, and you don't think that he's going to keep tabs on what you do in this life, whether good or evil, then you're not going to have the motivation to reach out to the people around you because you'll just think, oh, it doesn't really matter. I can kind of do it tomorrow. You might have this mindset, like the mindset of our culture, that your life is still your own. Okay, but let's say that you're reaching out to people around you and you're trying to care about them but you're not concerned about unity within the body of Christ. Like, okay, you're kind of an evangelism person but in the back of your mind you're like, I don't really care what goes on within the life of the local church. Then what's gonna happen is you're gonna be super zealous but your relationships within the body of Christ are gonna be broken And so your witness is actually gonna be compromised by that because you might lead your coworkers to Christ and bring them to church and then they're gonna recognize that you're not really well-connected to other believers and one of the primary ways that we influence other people for Christ is our love for one another and that's gonna be absent from your life. And so the salt sort of unifies your whole life. It brings everything into its proper orbit. So here's my question. Where does this kind of motivation to live this kind of life come from? How do we live a life from the heart that sort of denies this individualism, denies this immorality, And denies intolerance. Where we're at peace with other people. Where we're reaching out to other people. How how do we get there? I think the answer is the climax of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 is where this whole thing's headed. Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order to be outward focused, to love other people, to care for other people, we have to first and foremost see how Jesus has cared about us. We have to see that Jesus came to serve us, to love us, to lay down his life for us on the cross. In other words, your heart has to be melted by this reality that you are both sinful, deeply depraved in your heart, and yet loved by God. That's what gives you the inner freedom to stop being so insecure and fearful and concerned about yourself and begin to build relationships with the people in this room and with the people out there. So let me give you a few examples of the way that Jesus has laid down his life and served us. First one, Jesus has counted us as part of his family. The church throughout scripture is known as the bride of Christ, Which means that if you are in Christ, you are as close to him as a husband is to his wife. Jesus has that type of affection for you. When he thinks about you, he chooses not to think about all your flaws and all your fears and all your insecurities. He chooses to see you as precious and made in his image. The Bible says that he doesn't count your sin against you. As far as the east is from the west, he's removed your sin from you. So he sees you as his pure, spotless bride. And because of that, we are free to be tolerant of the other people in this room. We are free to overlook each other's Annoying habits, idiosyncrasies, sins, and flaws. And we are free to do what Jesus has done for us, for others. By not counting our sin against each other, but instead choosing to see one another the way that Jesus sees us. Secondly, we see that Jesus denied his own wants and desires. You remember that scene where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's crying out to God for another way? Is there a different way other than the cross that I can go? And he says, My desire is not to go to the cross. But then he says, Not my will, but your will be done. And that was just an extension of the pattern of Jesus' life. At every moment, he said, No to sin, and he said yes to God's commands. And the reason he did that primarily was so that he could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a life that you could never live, and he offers you his perfect life in exchange for your broken and messed up life so that you can be accepted by God. And because we see this example of Jesus denying himself, we can have the strength by the power of his spirit to deny our own sinful cravings and say yes to him. We can say no to our sexual immorality. We can say no to our anger and our greed and our pride. Thirdly, we see that he reached out to us and made peace with us. Jesus went from heaven to earth To reach out, to be in relationship with us, and to be unified with us. And we, when we understand that, not just intellectually but at a heart level, it's not so hard to walk over to the next cubicle and start a conversation with somebody or to care for somebody who's hurting within our church family. So we reach out and we make peace with others. And then lastly, we see that Jesus will hold us accountable. That he'll judge us with grace and truth. You know, as Christians, what we believe is the minute that you put your faith in Jesus, that he wipes the slate clean, that there's a verdict of no condemnation. But we also believe that after we die, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for everything that we did in our lives. And it's not going to be pretty, right? There's going to be some great things that we did, but there's going to be some things that we're not so proud of. But we look forward to this day when Jesus looks us in the eyes, and by grace, he will say to each of us, well done, good and faithful servant. And because of that, we cannot look at each other with judgment, but rather praise and encourage each other as long as we have breath in our lungs. So let's live these lives of denial of ourselves and living for Christ this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this call to deny what is most fundamental to our nature. I think each of us have experienced the consequences of following our own heart. And to varying degrees, we know that that doesn't work, that it leaves us Messed up and emotionally broken and guilty and feeling condemned. And so even though it's hard to hear, we just thank you for this call to radical living and radical repentance. And thank you that in the process, you don't yell at us and condemn us, but you pull us close and you love us and you warn us and you care for us. Just ask that we would know your intimate care for us this week And help us to simply turn away from sin and to say yes to you. In Jesus' name, amen.